We go to chapter 50, verse 4. This is the next servant song. Chapter 50, verse 4 through 11. The sovereign Yahweh has given me the capacity to be his spokesman, so that I know how to keep help the weary. He wakes me up every morning. He makes me alert so I can listen attentively as disciples do. The sovereign Yahweh has spoken to me clearly. I have not rebelled. I have not turned back. I offered my back to those who attacked me, my jaws to those who tore out my beard. Okay, so this is that famous, this is getting a little hint of the persecution. Now, this is what's important. Notice, like we often like, all oh, the cross, the cross. But notice what becomes before the suffering. He's given me the capacity to be a spokesman. Who is the spokesman of God? The prophets. The prophets. Is there any prophet that always, 100%, spoke the words correctly of what God said? No. The two greatest prophets that have ever lived, Moses and Elijah. Moses failed to speak accurately, and God condemned him and made him die outside the wilderness, outside that promised land. Elijah didn't even speak the words when God told him to, quit, and found a replacement, and God killed him outside the promised land. And God is now saying, but this servant, he has the capacity to actually be God's spokesman. And then he says this, he makes, wakes me up every morning, he makes me alert so I can listen attentively as the disciples do. He has spoken to me, and I have not rebelled, and I have not turned my back. Moses rebelled. Elijah rebelled. This servant will not. This servant will not screw it up. He will not muck it up. And this is the way he's saying, I hear the voice of God. And I speak what he wants me to speak. And I do not rebel. And I do not turn my back on him. I do not turn my back on him. This is a unique servant that Israel has never seen. They've never seen anything like this. And of course, we see this in Jesus. We see this in Jesus. There's a coolness to looking back at me like, oh my gosh, this is totally about Jesus. God has predicted this from long ago. But there also would have been a coolness to not knowing about Jesus and reading this and being like, oh my gosh, we've never seen anybody like this. This is going to be so amazing. What could it possibly be? So, I mean, there's a coolness to like not knowing what you're getting for Christmas. And there's a coolness of looking back and knowing what you have for Christmas. Unfortunately, we only get to see one side. How cool it would be to be like Anna and Zechariah and all them who were on both sides of Christmas, so to speak, um, of reading these prophecies and anticipating what will it be and then seeing what it actually has been or what will be. I offer my back to those who attacked, my jaws to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from the insults and the spitting, but sovereign Yahweh helps me, so I am not humiliated. For that reason, I am steadfastly resolved. I know I will not be put to shame. Okay, this is the idea. Wait, you can't have a king like this. You can't have a king who is attacked. You can't have a king that turns his back and allows people to beat him down and yank his beard out. And remember, why the beard of all the things? Because remember, the beard is a sign of authority and respect. And if you are a 30-year-old man or older and you don't have a beard, then you're considered a boy. And they're not going to follow you as a leader. And so when they're ripping your beard out, they're treating you like a little pathetic child. That's the idea. And the fact that it's happening to you means you are a pathetic little child. So the idea is that he's being beaten down like some defenseless little child who has no authority whatsoever. What kind of a king is that? But 
I am not humiliated because I trust in God. This is one of the things we've been so trying to teach our daughters. Like, you have value. And you are special. And you are precious. And and if you can hold on to that and realize that God loves you no matter what, not because you're beautiful, not because you're smart, not because you're skilled, not because you're talent, but because you are you, then hopefully they can stand up against anybody on the playground and be mocked and made fun of, and they're not humiliated because they know they are valued and precious. And I know that won't happen 100% because we're fallen creatures, but hopefully a better chance than what most of us fared on the playground growing up. And this is what God is saying. The servant is saying, I am so confidently rested in Yahweh that they beat me down and rip my beard out and treat me like a pathetic little child and mock me, and I am not humiliated. I am not humiliated. Because I have my value in God. And it doesn't matter what you think. Your pathetic little grass that will pass away and make idols with your own hands. He is the blueprinter of the universe and the creator of all things. But the sovereign Yahweh helps me, so I'm not humiliated. For this reason, I steadfastly resolve. I will persevere. I will not give up hope. I know I will not be put to shame. The one who vindicates me is close by, who dares to argue with me. Let us confront each other. Who is my accuser? Let him challenge me. Look, the sovereign Yahweh helps me. Now, this is interesting. When it comes down to being beaten down, his beard ripped out and humiliated physically, he takes it. But when someone challenges who he is in God, he says, let's, let's argue. I dare you to challenge me on my identity in God. I dare you to tell me that I'm wrong in my identity in God. You can beat me down and you can, you can humiliate me all you want, but I will not shut up when it comes to speaking the will of Yahweh. I will not stop talking about the uniqueness of Yahweh. I will not stop talking about how my identity is in Yahweh. doesn't matter what you do to physically. doesn't matter how you take my power away. But my real power is found in my confidence in God and my words to speak it. That's my power. If we could just live like that. Because the equivalent of that is my identity is in Christ. And I don't care what you think. I don't care what you say to me. I don't care how much you physically beat me down or take my money away from me or evict me from my home or I lose my job or any of that kind of stuff. I know that Christ will vindicate me. I know that he's with me. I know I have value in his eyes. That's what allows the Christians around the world to die without rejecting their faith. That's what allows them to be persecuted day in and day out. I mean, now I'm not saying they do this with this great confidence 24-7. We all, no matter how great our confidence, we all have moments where we're about ready to throw the towel in. But this is how they're able to persevere. This is how they're able to persevere. Only if you rest in Christ. Who's my accuser? Let him challenge me. Look, verse 9, the sovereign Yahweh helps me. Who dares to condemn me? Look, all of them were out like claws. 
A moth will eat them away. Who among you fears Yahweh, who obeys his servant? Whoever walks in the deep darkness without light should trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. Look at all you who start a fire and will equip yourselves with the flaming arrows. Walk in the light for fire you start among you as the flaming arrows you ignite. This is what you will receive from me when you lie down in a place of pain. And so now listen what's interesting. He says, my confidence is in God and I will argue you all night on this issue. But at the same time, you who bring arrows against me to kill me, put them away and come and walk with me. This is in it. He is, he is facing off with an enemy that he refuses to attack and kill and destroy. But he refuses to back down and give up his faith in God. And that he's hoping that his lack of destroying them and fighting them physically but his willingness to debate them theologically and philosophically and who God is will make them put down their weapons and join him and have the same confidence that they are valued by God as well. That's his mission. And you see that in Jesus, right? I mean, he took it. He took it physically. The Pharisees like pounding on him and the, all this stuff. That, but he never backed down theologically. He never backed down with his words. And even to the very end, with talking with Pilate and talking with Caiaphas, he's talking about who God is and who he is in God. And he will not change his mind, even as they're beating him down. And the hope is, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And this is, this is the prophecy that is pointing to that Christ. A str- his, yes, one day he'll come back as a military warrior, but... Just because he's being beaten down doesn't mean he's not strong. He is strong. He has great power. But his power was his words. His power was his arguing, and I don't mean like in a mean arguing, but his arguments, that's a better word, his arguments despite what they were doing to him. There's always somebody who's going to be stronger than you, physically. But the real strength is the ability to be beaten down and not have your spirit crushed, and to not lose all hope, and to just crawl into a fetal position and want to give up and die. And we are not capable of doing that unless we're rested in the Holy Spirit. Unless we're rested in the Holy Spirit. That's the next servant song. And that's the confidence. So this gives us the confidence of the servant despite the persecution. Despite the persecution. So that brings us to chapter 52. This is the most famous of them all. Chapter 52, verse 13. 52, 13. Look, my servant will succeed. He will be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted. Now this is the passage where he suffers. But notice how it begins. He will succeed, and he will be exalted. If you keep reading and think, wow, there's no way anybody could come back from that, he immediately starts by letting you know he will come back. Just as many were horrified by the sight of you, he was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred, he no longer looked like a human. So now he will startle many nations. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation, for they will witness something unannounced to them, and they will understand something they had not heard about. He will be crushed in such a horrible way, you will not recognize him as a human. He will look like ground beef. And yet they will be amazed when he comes out of that and stands up in the glory and the power 
that I'm going to give him. They will understand something that they can never, ever, ever comprehend. In the ancient world, when you get beaten down to death, you don't come back. Yet he will. And they have never seen anything like that. Who would have believed that we just heard? When was Yahweh's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God. That's the shoot. Like a root out of the patched soil. Parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention. No special appearance that we should want to follow him. I've heard youth pastors. This does not mean that he was going to be ugly. That's not the point. It is actually not about his physical appearance at all. It's about the fact that he doesn't come looking like a king. He doesn't come looking like a superhero. He doesn't come looking like a god or the son of a god, like Perseus and Hercules and all that kind of stuff. There's nothing about him when he walks in the room that you're just like, oh my gosh, he's a powerful being. But remember that when you go back to Genesis 49 verse 8, and it's predicting that Judah will give birth or produce the Messiah, it says that he would bind his donkey to the branch and that his teeth will, his eyes will be white as, or dark as wine. That wine imagery is joy. And so he says he'll tie his kingship to joy. He will be clothed in joy, wine. His eyes will be stained dark with wine, joy. And his words will be like his teeth will be white as milk. And milk is joy or peace and comfort. And so his words will come out. So what is it that will be attracted to him? The joy in his life and the sweet words that come out of his mouth. It will not be his physical power, the fact that he carries himself as if I deserve to be honored and respect that will attract you. It will be the way that he speaks gently. It'll be his confidence. It'll be his joy, which we just read in the last servant passage. That's what will attract you. It'll be his character. There is nothing about him will say power. There's nothing about him that will scream, I am a king, bow down to me. But there's everything in his character that will attract you because he'll be filled with joy and a confidence in God and an unshakability in his who he is and a gentleness in his words that you've never seen in anybody. And even when he's being beaten down, he'll still have that. He'll still have that. That's what will attract you. And that's what people were attracted to. He was despised or rejected by people. One who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised. We considered him insignificant. But he, was lifted, he lifted up our illness. He carried our pain. Even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something we had done. So there's that idea that he's bearing our sins and not his own. He was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we have been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path. But Yahweh caused the sin of all us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter block, like a sheep silent before the shears, he did not even open his mouth. How Israel ever thinks that this is Israel as a nation, I don't know. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living because of the rebellion of his own people. He was wounded. They intended to bury with him, crim- with him, with cr- bury him with criminals. 
but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. Though Yahweh desired to crush him and make him ill, once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life. And notice it's God who's crushing him. But God intended to crush him and destroy him. Once restitution has been made, then God will lift him up. Or we could call this redemption. He will see many descendants and enjoy long life. His descendants are not biological, though. His descendants are spiritual. And Yahweh's purposes will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will, be, he will reflect on his work. And he will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will quit many, for he carried their sins. So I will assign him portions with the multitudes. Now he's going to be crushed beyond recognition. But the idea is he will come back. And God will give him the greatest inheritance that the world has ever seen. The greatest inheritance the world has ever seen. This is not weakness. People confuse the ability to destroy you physically with weakness. With weakness. And this is what the word meek means. The word meek does not mean that you're supposed to let people roll over you, treat you as a punching bag, let them just destroy you and just lie there and take it. The word meekness means that you have a great strength within yourself because of who you are in God, that people can do things to you and it does not destroy you. It does not tear you down. And you treat them with gentleness and respect despite that is what they're doing. Meekness is everything I've described that this servant is. Okay? Their power doesn't come in their ability to dominate other. Okay? Their power comes in their ability to give up power. But they're willing to give it up and they don't feel threatened. Think about it. Everyone in all of human history, when they get power, they use it for their own advantage. Political power, physical power, superhero power, we use it for our own advantage. There's only one being who got absolute universal power and gave it up completely. And yet he did not become weak. He did not become weak. And that's meekness. That's meekness. It's that I don't have to dominate you and own you and control you to find my strength. You can make fun of me. You can even beat me up and leave me on the ground bloody. But I have still have greater strength than you do because of who I am in God. And I'm not going to retaliate on you to try to prove that I'm strong and I'm worthy of being a human. And then you better treat me with respect. But I can get up and treat you with respect and love on you. And it doesn't do anything to who I am because my confidence is God. That's meekness. That's, not, that's meekness. It's not rolling over and taking it. It's not the refusal to call people out. We, 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 Christians too often mistake, oh, I can't say to that. They'd be offended. Or I can't call them out for their sins. Or I can't do this. It's, I can't fight that cause. Remember, God called you to fight. Let justice and righteousness flow out of your river. You better get out the gloves and start fighting. But there's a way that you do it. And it's in Christ and not in yourself. Not in yourself. So that brings an end to this section. It brings in a section. So chapter 56, we begin a new section, and this is beyond the exile. He begins to look deeper past the exile 
of God actually restoring his people into something great. So far he's been talking about that he will restore them, but now he's going to talk about how, what that will look like. So once again, in chapter 56, verses 1 through 8, he encourages Israel to promote justice and to do right. Remember, it's all about promoting justice. Our ultimate goal in life is to expand the garden. And we expand the garden by stepping in and defending people, not with our fists. Sometimes it may be necessary, but only when the Holy Spirit is guiding you to do that. But with our actions, our words, our energy to defend the rights of people, to meet people's needs and to live rightly with people. And that's what meekness is. You're fighting for people, but you're not fighting out of your own power, your own desire to prove yourself something. You're not trying to fix all the problems in the world, and you're not trying to get vengeance on people who mistreat people like that. You're just trying to build a life for people. And if you, you need to take a beating to make that happen, so be it. So he calls them to do this. So then we come to another servant passage. Now, this isn't officially of the five, but it is an important servant passage. And this is chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. Chapter 61, verses 1 through 11. The spirit of the sovereign Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has chosen me. He has commissioned me to encourage the poor, to help the broken heart, to decree the release of captives and the freeing of prisoners, to announce the year when Yahweh will show his favor, the day when God will seek vengeance, to console all who mourn, to strengthen those who mourn in Zion by giving them a turban instead of ashes, oil symbolizing joy instead of mourning, a garment symbolizing praise instead of discouragement. They will be called oaks of righteousness, trees planted by Yahweh to reveal his splendor. Now this should sound familiar, because the first two verses of this is what Jesus read. So he went back to his hometown in Nazareth. Um, Basically in a synagogue, this is what you would do. There was a daily reading. And every morning they would read from the Torah, they would read from the, the historical book, or the Psalms, and they would read from the prophets. And you read in order. So it was like doing a Bible, through, going through the Bible in a year kind of a thing. So you'd read this chapter from the Torah, and the next day you would read the next chapter. And the next day you'd read the next chapter. So then, then you would read a psalm. And the next day you'd read the next psalm. And then you'd read a passage from the prophet. And you went in order. This chapter in the Torah, this psalm, and that chapter in the prophets, you would close it up. And then somebody would sit down and they would submit themselves to God and they would say, well, Rabbi whatever said this meant this and Rabbi this said that it meant this and Rabbi said this and it meant this and da, 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 da. And that's how you taught. Now, one of the things that Jesus never said, Rabbi said this and Rabbi said that. He said, you've heard it said, but I say. And this is why people were like, what authority does he speak with? Every teacher we've ever said just quotes everybody else. And then they don't, they don't come to conclusions. They would just, it would be the equivalent of me saying, so a lot of commentators take this view on this passage, and then some commentators take this view on this passage, and then some commentators take this view on this passage. But none of them are really willing to say this is the right view. There you go. End of message. But now we're like, okay, but I actually take a view. Okay, I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong. Sometimes I don't think there's a wrong. Um, but most they, that's what they said. But Jesus didn't, he didn't even quote the rabbis. He said, forget all the commentaries, forget all the rabbis. I say. 
And they had never heard anybody speak like that, ever. And that's why they were amazed by him. That's why the Pharisees were livid. You can't, you can't say, I say. You're not allowed to do that. So then what he does, he comes to Nazareth. So then you would read. As you read, you would read from the word because you're standing and God is speaking. Then you sit and then you present the views because you're not standing in an authoritative way that this is what you should interpret. So Jesus comes in Nazareth and they're like, hey, Rabbi, you're a teacher. Why don't you read the daily readings for us? And he comes in and it says, notice it says in Luke, he says it, he turned in the scroll. You don't do that. The scroll's already open to the passage and it stays open throughout the night and the week. And so he went and he says, no, 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 you guys are in Micah right now. That's not where I want to be. And he rolls all the way to Isaiah. And he comes to Isaiah 61, and he reads this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Yahweh is upon me. Wait a minute. The only person the Spirit of Yahweh is on is the prophets and the kings and the priests. But we haven't had those in years. We've had priests, but they're ding-dongs. We haven't had those things in years. And the only person now that will ever have the Spirit put upon them is the Messiah. So in that words right there, he's saying, I'm it. I just violated all your tradition, went to the passage I wanted to read, and it was about the Messiah. And now I'm saying, I am the Messiah because Yahweh has chosen me, not you, and not your rabbis. He has commissioned me to encourage the poor. But I'm not an arrogant person saying, I got chosen, you didn't. I've been chosen to encourage the poor, to help the brokenhearted, to decree the release of captives and the freeing of prisoners to announce the year when Yahweh will show his favor, the day when our God will seek vengeance to console who are mourn. And then he says, and this today, this is fulfilled in me. And then he continued to stand and speak. He didn't sit. He continued to stand and speak. And they were like, who do you think you are? Like, you're, you're, we really liked you and thought you were an awesome rabbi until you got all arrogant on us like that. And I almost imagine Jesus thinking, you think I'm arrogant? I just talk, I just, I'm coming to free poor people and help brokenhearted people. That's not arrogance. And they're like, who do you think you are? And then he says, I tell you the truth. Just like Elijah wasn't accepted by his own people in his day and he went to the Gentiles instead, so the Son of Man will be rejected by you, and I'll go to the Gentiles. And at that, they were like, oh, no. There's no way you can say that about us. And they grabbed him, and they tried to take him to a cliff to throw him off. And they just walked through the crowd and left them. And then what did he begin to do? Heal the brokenhearted, deliver the captives, set people free. And they couldn't stop him. And he wasn't arrogant. He wasn't prideful. He was doing what they were supposed to do. And the whole point that he makes in that message is this is what you're supposed to be, Israel. And you're not. And you've become corrupted and arrogant and prideful. And you're not meek. But the Messiah is meek and I am him and I will do what you failed to do. And what you ultimately were called to do was help the brokenhearted, free the prisoners, and those people also include the Gentiles. And that's what I'm going to do. And that, that's exactly what he's reading, and that's the point that he's making. I am the suffering servant. I am the meek king. But you become so much about arrogance and pride 
that you're looking for a kick-butt king. And that will be a part of who I am. But only after I free people. People have to be set free before I can destroy evil. Before I can destroy evil. So verse 4. They will rebuild perpetual ruins and restore the places that were desolate. They will reestablish the ruined cities and the places that have been desolate since ancient times. Foreigners will take care of your sheep. Foreigners will work in your fields and vineyards. Now, right now, foreigners have been oppressing them under the Roman Empire. You will be called Yahweh's priests, servants of God. You will enjoy the wealth of the nations and boast about the riches you receive from them. Instead of shame, you will get double portion. Instead of humiliation, they will rejoice over the land that they receive. Yes, they will possess a double portion of their land and experience lasting joy. Now, obviously, that part doesn't happen until the second coming. For I, Yahweh, love justice and hate robbery and sin. I will repay them because of my faithfulness. I will make a permanent covenant with them. There's a permanent covenant. Now, this is interesting because the old covenant could be broken. And the old covenant had to be renewed every year. Every time they sinned, they broke the old covenant. And on Yom Kippur, what we call it today, back then they called it the Day of Atonement, they would make another goat sacrifice and they pour the blood on the Ark of the Covenant to renew the covenant for another year. And immediately within that year, it'd be broken with their sins. The animal sacrifices they committed will help keep that covenant going. It's like trying to get the car to get to the gas station on the fumes from the gas and eventually get into the gas station next day of atonement to make another animal sacrifice. And then there'd be so many sins that they wouldn't sacrifice for because they didn't know they were even sinning. Or they were like, eh, that's too far of a walk for me. Just do it for that little sin. The covenant was just constantly broken over and over and over again. They had to keep renewing it and renewing it. And what he's saying is this will be a permanent covenant, which is a way of saying it will be unbroken. You can't break this covenant that he's going to make. And that's obviously the new covenant made with his body and his blood. Their descendants will be known among the nations, their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that Yahweh has blessed them. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. I will be overjoyed because of my God, for he clothes me in garments of deliverance. He puts me on a robe symbolizing vindication. I look like a bridegroom when he wears a turban as a priest would. I look like a bride when he puts on her jewelry. Notice he's saying, Yahweh will vindicate me. This is not about my power to dominate people. This is about God's power to vindicate me. I'm trusting in him. Yes, all the passages we've read so far is of a king who will come and destroy the nations. But now that the suffering servant actually begins to speak with his own mouth for the first time, he's saying, it is God who's vindicating me. It's God who gives me power. It's God who will make this happen. It's actually not me. It's him working through me. For just as the ground produces crops and the garden yields its produce, so sovereign Yahweh will cause the deliverance to grow and give his people reason to praise him in the sight of all the nations. That's been the problem. Saul, David, Ahab, all of them were trying to do all this in their own power. And they kept failing. And all the time the prophets were like, go to God, go to God, go to God. And they wouldn't. And their kingdoms fell. And the suffering servant says, I'll actually go to God. Every time. 